Hi, and welcome back to Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight, the web agency and product agency in New York City that builds the the best imaginable websites and mobile applications that anyone has ever (laughs) conceived of. My name is Paul Ford, and I am here with my co-founder, Rich Yate. Hello, Paul. And today we have an incredibly special guest on the show. His name is Dean Hakamovich. Golf club. Yeah, there we go. Dean is here with us, and he is, oh my God, where do you, you you knew him first. I did know him first. I got a phone call out of the blue, and I think we chatted for an hour the first time you called. I sent flowers. He sent flowers, and it turned into pillow talk real fast. Yeah. Dean, Dean, what were you doing when you met Rich? At the time, I was the corporate vice president for Internet Explorer at Microsoft. That's right. I remember this. It sounds less exciting when you say it that way. Well, it's that Midwestern agency voice that you you know learn. It's like mission control at NASA. We've right. had an obvious malfunction. <laughs> How many obvious malfunctions would you have in any given week? Personal or collective? Collective. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is... I think the best way to answer this is that this internet thing is going to be really big one day. Mm-hmm. And if you have an email address like secure at Microsoft.com mm-hmm. and that anyone can send email to, you'd get a lot of email. Okay. Can, I, can I interrupt you guys? Yeah. We've got this glorious bulleted list of all the things Dean has done in his life. Well, let's get – I want to ask one let's question. Let's let the give, world know that – I want to get everybody yeah, a little context. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. The context – how many people used Internet Explorer? When you were working on it? Oh, uh, you know, order of magnitude is hundreds of millions. So you're, you were in charge of a software product with Internet Explorer. You did other things at Microsoft, but you had hundreds of millions of users for your product. Yes. Okay. So that's, that's why we're so excited to talk to you because – not just because of the, the scope of that, but because that's hard. Like having hundreds of millions of people who could conceivably be really upset with you on any given day. They are. Actively. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Is really tricky. So as Rich pointed out, we should back people into um, explain a little bit about what you've done and what happened to you. <laughs> well, uh, I'll start after the alien abduction. Um, I so I, I finished a four year program and was you know contemplating going to grad school. I ended up going to Microsoft instead. Did they recruit you? Did you want to go? Uh, I was recruited. It was actually a, it's a fun story. I was all set to go to grad school. I was in, I had my funding lined up and then I started getting these emails. Where were you going to go to grad school? I was going to go to UCLA. Okay. To the computer to study. science. Oh, computer so science, computer theoretical science. computer science. Sunshine, not rain. Surfboards. Got it. It was oh, all okay. lined up. And then Seattle calls. Um, and it was, you know, it, it were deep diving right now. Let me, let me go across and then back up. So basically, I got to Microsoft in August of 1990. How big is it then? Uh, I think it was around 5,000 people. Okay. So it was before, it was right around the time Windows 3.0 came out. But like IBM was much bigger. Uh, Microsoft was a really good underdog. Okay. It started. Uh, I, I think, I think the, the key story is when the moving guys came to get my three boxes – Right from from college, move across. The guy had a clipboard, 
And he looked down and he goes, oh, you're moving to Seattle. That's great. Let's see. You're moving to uh, microfrost. Oh, refrigeration. That's a really big, important thing. And I just started nodding like, okay, good to know. So Microsoft was not really the most. It was there. There were like Nirvana was there. I think Nirvana came afterward. It was grunge was right about then, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So so grunge is starting. You're leaving the East Coast and going to the West Coast. Absolutely. And so roughly hewn, I spent about 10 years working on what turned out to be Office Mm -hmm. with an amazing cast of people. Like absolutely some of the most spectacular, amazing people I've ever worked with. Spent a brief period of time working uh, in the games division. And then I missed working at Microsoft. And that was so just a separate universe? When it, was, it was a very different set of gravity. Physics were totally different. Uh, and then I, um, then I went to work on the Windows team. And we talked quite a bit in the last uh, – a couple of podcasts ago about Steven Sanofsky. Yes. Because ta- he'd written a big essay on product mm-hmm. for Medium. So did you work with him? I worked with Steven on both ends. So I worked with him back when I was in office, back on Word and, and on the core office team. And then uh, after he came to Windows Okay. Uh, when I was working on IE. Okay. So you, you're working on Windows. Then what happens? Then the, the very short version is this security thing breaks out. And so there are things that you can read about like Slammer and Blaster and people become aware that security is important and hard and Oh and viruses were just eating every window. Was that when you would turn on a Windows machine and it would be hacked into in like five minutes? Um sometimes five minutes would be a nice long time. Right. <laughs> and mostly it was the you look at CNN and you'd see the ticker across the bottom. Or, you know, there were these photographs of people coming to work. And there'd be signs pasted on the door saying, do not turn on your PC. Oof. And so there is a great deal of uh, security. I think the technical term was consternation. Fair. There is a great deal of energy and attention put into making this better. And I won the lottery. I got the IE job, which was super exciting. How does that come to you? How at an organization like Microsoft does someone say or do you say, how about IE? Well, the, the phone rang in my office, and I looked at the caller ID, and I realized that I'm you know, not really allowed to let it go to voicemail. And I said, how's it going? They said, you're working on IE. And there was a brief conversation where I indicated that that might, you know, I, I wasn't really sure. And then I was informed that that actually wasn't a question. So a very, very well-known human being called you up. I was directed and in, says, in the best. Right. And so it was great. I started that afternoon. (laughs) Where do you start? Well, uh, I started by trying to find the source code. Oh, okay. So there's no like central. Oh, there, there, there was. Okay. But it was still, you know, there's, there's this whole notion of, of how do you deal with crisis and chaos? And, you know, let's go to a question that, that you guys asked before, which was how do you get a thousand people working in the same direction? Mm-hmm. How do you get a large number of people? And there's, there are so many different answers. Candidly, the most coherent ones, I'll go back to, to Stephen Sanofsky's written work. Like, I, I really think that is definitive in so many ways. On bringing IE back, you know, the first steps were making phone calls to get good people lined up and saying, hey, we're going to have this great adventure. Someone calls you and says, guess what? And then you become that person. 
Right. And <laughs> so it was, you are now running, you're behind. Why haven't you done anything? Mm-hmm. You've been on the job 43 seconds. When what are you sh- waiting when's for? When's it shipping? Uh, right. what, what version of IE are we on right now? You take it over. What version are we on? Um, so it was uh, Internet Explorer 6 Service Pack 1. Okay. There, Ooh, those were dark days. Those were very dark days. You know, Paul, there's this whole other history waiting to get written because if you, if you think about it, there's this amazing come-from-behind story around the birth of IE. Yeah. And then there's this very peculiar blacked-out period. Known as the antitrust period or oh, – ju- Just known as – so what were they doing? So they okay. shipped I 6 and then what? Mm-hmm. And then you have the security meltdown and then things come back. Okay. It's a it's a fascinating, I'd say almost, you know, Harvard Business Review caliber story of so what was Microsoft doing and what were they choosing to do and how did they see the future playing out? Did people know how big a mess this was like at that moment? Like when they, I mean, you knew cuz they called you and they said you'd take this over and you were like, "Ah." Well, uh, uh, my hesitation at the time was based on it sure didn't seem like it was important to the company. Okay. Right? Like this is not like Based on the decisions we've made and how we ended up here, like how is this a priority? Uh, and the answer was, "Hey, it's a priority. You're on it now. Go do something." Okay. Which is which is an interesting you know approach to to empowerment in a larger organization, and you'll see that that pattern plays out a lot <laughs> at, at this particular organization. Um, no, I'd say in, in a whole bunch of places. Okay. It's I, the, I wouldn't this... be surprised. I mean, key people who have sort of earned their stripes as and known for sort of going in and writing ships and you're, you're considered, okay, you know what? Did you view yourself as an employee at that point? At that point, you've got like, you've got a weird tattoo somewhere, right? <laughs> I have no idea how to interpret any of these questions. At, at this point... Um, could you have said, I mean, you've been there a long time. You're quite tenured. You could have said, no, you know, thank you. I'm not feeling this. I really want to work on accessibility for right. a while. Could right. you have said that? Or privacy. Or, or privacy. Yeah. Could you? I'm sure. I mean, yeah, because look, fu- fundamentally, you, the, the thing about these intellectual property jobs is you can't make someone do something. Of course. You, you just can't. And again, I'm going back to like Paul, I think, has this recurring theme he's getting to, which is how do you get a lot of people going towards the same goal, building something that matters? There's also an element here of like the, the helicopter lands and you're sitting on the dock and they're like, Akamovich. We need you back at headquarters. It's hard to say no to that. It's flattering, no? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 nice to be wanted, right? right? And <laughs> and you know, let's let's say that in the most grandmotherly way way possible. You know, please come here so I can cook. Right, right, right. Um, there, you know, there's this whole other concept called crisis prevention, right? And and you think about organizations, and you think, how good a job do I do rewarding people for anticipating and preventing problems? And so you start getting into some of the dysfunctions in particular organizations and cultures. And at the at the risk of using overly colorful language, there's a phenomenon, I don't know the real name, uh, which is the arsonist firefighter syndrome, mm-hmm. right? There are these people who are these amazing firefighters who are also the greatest arsonists sure. in the organization. These are these crisis-driven people. And if there's no crisis, there's no action. So they need to create a crisis. Right. And, you know, sometimes that makes sense. And sometimes it's net negative. And you could argue security was an amazing crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the internet was a was an amazing crisis. Still is. Um, 
Yeah, and you can you could argue that we've evolved. We no longer call it the internet. It's I think it's a cloud. I think that's. Yeah, I mean, that's a better, something else. Better that's name, be, really. That's something else will be really big one day. Cloud yeah. seems mobile, more harmless. Than yeah, internet. let's go with cloud. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, so so the arc was, um, you know, showing up out of college and then you know having this amazing run with just amazing people working on Word and Office and then Word again and then Office again. Um, and then this this IE thing, which was super educational. How many hours are you working in a given week? Uh, when I started on IE, the first several weeks were over 100 hours. I think my primary memory of that first week on IE was the 2 a.m. staff phone call roundup that I took in a closet with a door closed in order to not wake up the kids. So you were going home at least. I was going home to be visible yeah. and then – Kept going. He just kept going. Like yeah. there, there, there were no boundaries. Okay. Also, oh, your team's all over the world. I'm guessing. Well, yeah, it was scattered across a couple of time zones. Yeah. And then, how big is this team? How big is the team the first month? Let's say. So uh, this is this is the warning. the The challenge with offering a team size for any organization, whether it's Facebook or Google or Amazon, is there's all sorts of shared resource that you just don't know how to account for. Sure. Okay. So, for example, there are. Um, in France, there are technical account managers who do an amazing job being frontline with EDF, the French power company, to make sure that things are going well. Do I count like all those people who are keeping EDF solvent and happy? Mm, that's kind of hard. Okay, well, what about the JavaScript support team that, you know, trolls? So it's like there are easily hundreds of people across the broader organization who are essential and, and you're going to use their code. You're going to use them as resources. We're, right. We're, we're going to use them in, in a variety of ways because they're, they're part of the fabric that holds the team up. Um, the, the team has changed names several times. The developer relations group, for example, these amazing people, none of them reported to me, but they were super instrumental in terms of producing sample code, in terms of providing feedback, in terms of saying, hey, the jQuery guys have this question. Could we make blah, blah, blah work better? Most people don't have any experience of an organization at this scale, in particular, one that ships software that is also this big. It's a very... at, at this scale, it's weird to call it an organization. Right. I mean, that's so how do you get developer relations to do something? Uh, well, I think the, the root answer is in a lot of organizations, they do whatever they're going to do, and that may or may not help the larger goal. Uh, at Microsoft, I was particularly blessed because... You know, we'll just, you know, start doing the, the name drops, right? So, you know, people like uh, Tim Sneath or Giorgio Sardo were just amazing. Like these people knew the technology. They knew people all over the industry and they could identify good opportunities. And you had existing relationships with them going into the IE project. Uh, yeah, I met them in passing. And, you know, one of the challenges, whether you're at a really small company right on the outside trying to figure out who to connect with or inside of a very large company is you very quickly try to find who knows what. Mm -hmm. So that whole notion of knowledge management or institutional memory or who knows this. And it's it's essential. There's no like there's no CIA rule book where you can just look up and say, oh, who knows how to do this? Go to this guy. So you start asking around and anyhow, so we had some relations and we built up better relations quickly. You know, there's a story, um, there's a gentleman who sent me a piece of flame mail saying, you know, I work at Microsoft and I resent your team and I resent this and I really hate this and just vented mm -hmm. like two screenfuls. I guess it was therapeutic for him. And I wrote back a one-liner, which is, you're right. Why don't you come here and make it better? 
and he joined the team 10 days later and had a great run and made things a lot better. And you just see this pattern playing out. He knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, it was a great way to get a job because <laughs> he was factually based yeah. and he had good ideas about how to solve. Yeah. Well, you also, you we have... see that sometimes actually. It's like people who are interested in a project or working with us or what else. You know, one of my first hires ever, someone had just hit view source on, mm-hmm. the, on the page and, and he, we were looking for front end JavaScript, CSS. This is years ago. And he found errors. And just said, you know, you really should get your act together. And he knew what was up. He knew I was like, well, okay, I like I like how you're thinking. There's some flair. Yeah, yeah. And look, it, it's such a different world now, right? And this is not going to be a get off my lawn moment. This is a, a moment of appreciation. If you go back, you know, not even that long ago, there weren't that many people who were aware of what software was right. or how to work it or they had a very narrow sense of it. And now it's at the risk of sounding like, you know, oh my God, this is, you know, wonderful unicorns, rainbows. There are so many people working on this stuff. You think about what code.org is doing. Sure. Think about like Hadi Partovi and, and, and those guys getting, um, you know, getting computer science and programming to count in schools sure. as a science, as part of the STEM efforts that are going on. That's huge. And as there's greater awareness and greater skill, it's, it's like compound interest. The tech's going to get better. Expectations are going to go up. And you go back even a few years, getting a cold call, getting mentioned from someone who could be aware and formulate like a well-defined, look, here is where your product is failing. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a bug, not the world is on fire. Help. Right. That's huge. Right. So it just cuts an enormous number of steps out for you. And actually for that person, there's now a measure of success. Yeah. See, okay. You said what was wrong. See if you can fix it. Yeah, and at, at some level, everyone in this industry got to start somewhere, mm-hmm. right? It was, hey, I wrote a game on my PC. Oh, I figured out how to cheat on a game. Sure. Oh, I figured out how to, you know, how to do this. And you just build that up. And it's, it, it, I think it's really easy to lose track right now of how much better it is than it was before. Because we can spend, like, Paul Rich and I just spent a few hours talking about the miserable state of a certain class of tool. Right. Right. And how many hours a week engineers lose to shuffling data from point A to point B. Yeah. I, I should give context there. We're working on a project together. That's why we spent a couple hours. Is it, a, is it a secret? It's not a secret. It's, a, it's secret enough, but we're all, we're all working on something. We together. also, we don't want future guests to think that we pre-screen for five hours before yeah. we let you on our show. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, yeah, are, you, are you seeking funding for this project while you use this? Po- I mean, at a, at a certain point, we'd love to talk to interested venture capital people about some of the work we're okay, doing. We sure. love VCs. If you go back and listen to episode one, you'll find out how much. Really, we love what, VCs. all we do is talk about how great and and positive VC culture is, and and how it leads to only the best products. So, um, you're you're inheriting this thing. You are talking to people literally around the world. You're working a hundred hour weeks. Yes. And again, people listening to this program may not understand, you're not writing code. So I, this is a great moment to remind people that, you know, unlike things with Tom Hanks in it, right, there really is a cast of hundreds, mm-hmm. depending on how you want to do the accounting, cast of thousands, making this stuff work. I, in terms of what I wrote, uh, for the most part, it was email mm-hmm. and PowerPoint. Turns out that, Software development uh, really is a professional activity. 
And there's this amazing recurring thing around, okay, well, it needs to work. It needs to work fast. It needs to work consistently. It needs to work with low memory. It needs to work in French and in German in the Far East. It needs to work on the server. It needs to work on a phone. It, so there's this whole long list of uh, what you expect. And you know, there, there are these fun stories of, you know, like new hires coming in. So it's you know, some, you know, fresh out of college person shows up and, you know, the mail goes out to the team. Oh, please welcome Joanna Smith, who's joining us from Carnegie Mellon University or from Stanford or wherever. And, you know, you go by the office to say, hey, welcome to the team. How's it going? Uh, what are you working on? And you go like, oh, I have this bug to fix. Like they gave me this bug. They, you know, I'm all checked in and I'm going to go fix this bug. And you go, well, you know, that's, that's great. It, you know, like you're getting started on your first day fixing a bug and that, that's going to be great. And you know, just one word of advice here, don't break the internet. <laughs> And there's this, and there's this moment of frozen, you know, wow, wait, this code is going out to how many boxes? Wait, what, what's what stands between me and melting the internet? How is that going to work? It's actually possible. Um, you could pre prefetch a bunch of resources, or there's all sorts of things you could you do. could, uh, for example, make a network timeout value more standards compliant and Sounds conform like a great thing to a to standard. Do and overlook the fact that a great number of servers in financial services in the Far East were actually expecting a different value, thus enabling a whole lot of financial transactions to fail miserably for a window of time until you could scramble and get a different fix out. How Just does, hypothetically. How does thus news, destroying thousands of migrant workers' jobs. How does news of a problem like that enter the organization? So, you know, there's old era and new era. New era, you have amazing telemetry, measurement at a distance. You have amazing instrumentation, analytics. We have lots of different words for how do we get that feedback. Mm -hmm. In the older days, you know, for all the testing and all the pre-flighting and everything you, you did, sometimes you just can't hit every possible configuration. And, you know, you basically wait for one full rotation of the earth so that every time zone gets to experience every hour of the day. Yeah. I mean, you know what used to blow me away? I mean, first off, you can push a fix nowadays quickly. There was a day when it was a box on a shelf that you installed, and then it took a couple of weeks for the, the paper mail to come in about that horrible bug. That's why video games, like PlayStation games, PlayStation 1 games, always blew me away at how rock solid they had to be before they pressed all those CDs. Right. And sent those games out. Because even on a hard drive, you could get those floppy disk updaters that would take your big application. That's what to, it was. You'd get, yeah, yeah exactly. and they would patch the app. That yeah. itself was often a disastrous process. Yeah, I mean, PlayStation 1 games, there was there was no floppy disk update. Like, it had to be right. So that, I would imagine their bar was somewhere else versus... Yeah, and, and realize there are so many different constraints here. Like, how many of those games had an online component early on? Relatively low. Um, you think about console games and hardware variation. The whole point of the console is there's very little hardware variation. Like right. you know you have a nice, stable platform. And so, look, one of the bad jokes about software engineering is, is, is if the standard Nobel Prize acceptance speech is, I see so far because I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? The computer programming one is, I see so far because I'm standing on the toes of my predecessors. Like right. we, we keep right. doing incremental, incremental <laughs> gain. And over time, it, it eventually it adds up. One of the things that you've been talking about and alluding to is that 
in the process of shipping to hundreds of millions of people, getting your code out, getting people to use it, the feedback that comes in is often expressed violently. Like people are angry or you've done something that damages their livelihood. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about how you manage that because it seems like temperamentally you've adjusted to that kind of feedback. But also you're in an organization, any big org is like this, where they're out there marketing the hell out of themselves, saying, we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And meanwhile, you're hearing constantly, this is not even anywhere near as good as sliced bread needs to be. And it's this very, like, I remember in particular, it took me a long time to understand that there were kind of two Microsofts. There was one that was saying, enjoy the greatest experience you will ever have in your life. And then also that the engineers internally must have been aware of the bugs and the problems, were deeply aware of them and very concerned about them. Yeah. So look, you're describing fundamentally the engineering dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. If you're an engineer, you understand that you live in a very imperfect world and you appreciate all the risks and you feel like every day you're managing risk and how you're going to approach it. You think through you know, is this great? Is this not great? Is someone screaming at me? And at the essence of that engineering mindset is you're always making trade-offs. The whole point is that you make a trade-off so you get something instead of nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, this, this notion of there's always going to be something going wrong. Let me give you an example from, from using my Mac. Okay, so I have, a, I have a Mac and as a matter of hygiene, I wipe it down every couple of weeks. Good practice. So really? I will, I will really? flatten the box, bring it back up from scratch. Every couple of weeks? You know, you, you have a certain set of experiences and you just develop healthy paranoia. Wow, this is the man who shipped IE. Dean, what are you doing on that machine? You know, Should we nothing, pause this podcast so we can have that quick you know, conversation? Nothing, nothing profound, but it's just this, this whole notion of, okay, well, if I lost the machine, would I be able to recreate it? Okay. If I lost, like it, this whole notion of can I start from scratch? All right. So right. Here, here's why I bring this up. So when I bring it up from scratch, you can have the log file go by as the Mac OS is installing itself off the partition and right. And you go through and you look at this log file and you think, this is a shipped product. It's beautiful. It's just great. And you look at that log file and all the errors that are scrolling by. And, and a brand new installation of... Yep. Mac OS. Yeah. You do this to, so you can feel better about yourself? Um, what, look at the errors coming yeah, out of like, no, 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 flaws no, in the all. world? No, not at all. And, you find, and that's still viewed, I mean, Apple, practically speaking today, I mean, pretty much if you speak to a layman about Apple, they, they, everyone sort of puts well, they them They make like, wonderful products. Well, they're, they're my, so my, polished and they, they, take, they, right. they go that extra mile. Right, and, and my, my point is just under the hood. There's all kinds of stuff going there's on. There's always... There's always going to be another bug. There's always going to yeah. be another, another situation. And, and for what it's worth, part of the dynamic nature of the landscape is what makes it fun. Random story from back in the day. Tuesday morning, we review a potential vulnerability. Okay? So it's like, okay, if the following things happen, an attacker could get this far. We look at this and we go, okay, well, they could only get this far and they couldn't do any of the following dangerous things. A paper comes out on Wednesday. Thursday, we went back and revisited that bug because the world had changed. Okay. And it's this whole notion of expectations are going up, technologies are going up. You know, think about how you relate to network connectivity for a moment. There was a moment in time years ago when we thought network connectivity is unilaterally getting better. 
It will only get faster. It will only get lower latency. It will only get better, better, better. And of course, that didn't happen because we got Wi-Fi. We got Wi-Fi in 17 different flavors. Ooh, wait, there's Wi-Fi when you're offed onto your employer's network and when you're just out on the public internet. Oh, wait, there's 3G and there's 4G. And you realize that network connectivity is not a one zero anymore. It's, it's spotty. If you use GoGo when you're, you know, flying above the US, you have no idea what you might get. And so all these assumptions that connectivity gets better didn't really happen. All the assumptions, screens are only going to get bigger. No, not at all. Some of the most interesting screens you're going to use are small and fit in your pocket. Mm -hmm. the, the, the general notion of all progress is incremental until it's not. Like think about how many years, I'm looking at Paul on, on this one, we've heard AI is just around the corner. So around the corner. Speech recognition is just around the corner. Oh, we're very excited about it again. It seems to pick up speed every couple of years or so. I mean, right now everyone's excited about self-driving cars. And so there's a big discussion. I think that, you know, that's one of the things driving that AI discussion is that there's great consumer interest again. Well, I think part of what's driving is that there's a whole bunch of things that you say, if we can get humans out of this loop, we would just be better off. Driving is definitely one of them. And, you know, we've seen what humans do driving, and we're really hopeful about what we can do removing humans from that loop. But you see this in a whole bunch of other places. There are a whole bunch of automation. Think about factory assembly lines, right? There's a whole lot of stuff that if we could automate this, like, you know, machines should work and people should think. Right. Or, you know, people should think and or create. And it would be nice to, to get that loop working better. And I think that, you know, AI is one of the – it is a technology that you will see – cited more and more as the solution to getting yeah. people out of the loop. Yeah. So our conversation with Dean was great and it actually went on a little bit further and there's more to talk about. So we're going to have him back next week to finish this conversation and talk about things like Microsoft Word and Clippy and the future of the web. Join us next week on the Postlight podcast track changes and we'll finish this conversation. Hey, so this podcast doesn't have a sponsor because it's created by the sponsor. It's anyway, you get it. it we this, are the sponsor. We are the sponsor. Paul and Rich, we uh I, I get out my credit card every week and we give it to a guy and he lets us record in this beautiful studio. We co-founded a company called Postlight. It builds great, big, beautiful technology things. Well, it's made by great, beautiful people. It's true. We have an amazing team. Yes. Amazing team. Dozens of people who work as product managers, they're engineers, we have interaction designers. Just, yes, the whole the whole bit, and they're all great. You can come to us with an idea. You can be like, I want my thing on the phone with the browser to do this. To spin. Yeah, and yes. we're like, we'll get that for you. We got no problem. Exactly. So if you want to learn more about us, you can send an email to contact at postlight.com, contact at postlight.com. That'll go straight to Rich and me. And we will respond to you. We want to hear what's up. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It was great to have Dina Kamovich here in the studio for Track Changes from Postlight. Check us out online at postlight.com. Go to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. We, we need it. We hope we earned it. We'll be back soon with more Dean Hakamovich and more Rich Yachty. Rich, you're checking your phone. Can you pay attention? And more Paul Ford. Yeah, great. Okay. Thank you. Bye.